Amazon has argued for many years that it should not be held liable for defective products sold by third-party merchants on Amazon.com. Now this case centers around a Pennsylvania woman. She went on Amazon and bought a dog leash from one of those third-party vendors. She says the leash broke, hit her in the eye, and blinded her. The company maintains that the liability should rest with the seller, not with the marketplace facilitating the sale. In the past, courts have said Amazon wasn't responsible for third-party products. But recent legal and regulatory decisions have undermined its case. But now, a federal court says Amazon can be held responsible for that dog leash. And in a surprise twist, Amazon recently announced that it will directly compensate consumers for valid claims of property damage or personal injury caused by third-party products sold on its platform, up to $1,000 or even more in certain situations. I think it's a big deal because Amazon is coming to the table. This is one of the rare instances where Amazon is coming proactively to consumers and saying, okay, we're going to try to fix this for you even though we may not be liable. That is Venkat Balasubramani, a Seattle-based technology attorney and co-founder of the law firm Focal, PLLC. But it is also a strategic move that addresses Amazon's own legal and regulatory challenges. So this is just Amazon seeing the storm coming, trying to get ahead of it and covering their butts. That's Jason Boyce, a former Amazon seller founder of Avenue 7 Media and author of the book, The Amazon Jungle. Amazon says the plan is a continuation of its investment in helping third-party sellers grow their businesses. That investment totaled $18 billion in 2020, according to the company. It's also part of a larger effort by Amazon to protect its online store from fraud and abuse. On this episode of Day 2, GeekWire's podcast about everything Amazon, we discuss the new policy and explore the implications for consumers, third-party sellers, the company, and the law. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire's Day 2 podcast about everything Amazon. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop, and on today's show, we're talking about product liability and Amazon. This is one of the most fascinating topics facing Amazon today. We've got two experts with us who are going to be able to lead us through this First, Jason Boyce, our day two collaborator and the resident expert on the podcast. He's a former top 200 third-party seller on Amazon, founder of Avenue 7 Media, and co-author of the book, The Amazon Jungle. Good to see you, Jason. Hey, Todd. Great to see you. And our guest this week is Venkat Balasu Brahmani. He is a Seattle-based attorney and co-founder of the law firm Focal PLLC. He focuses on a variety of commercial and intellectual property disputes, he also counsels clients on privacy, social media, marketing, and other issues in the internet space. Venkat, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on. So we decided to get together to talk about this because Amazon recently came up with a policy, a new policy. Amazon says it will start compensating customers up to $1,000 for property damage or personal injury caused by defective products that are sold by third-party merchants on Amazon.com. Venkat, what stood out to you from Amazon's announcement? I think it's a big deal because Amazon is coming to the table, right? For many years, historically, Amazon has defended, and I would say aggressively defended, product liability lawsuits. 
you know, they have various legal arguments that they've raised with varying degrees of success. But I think this is one of the rare instances where Amazon is coming proactively to consumers and saying, okay, we're going to try to fix this for you, even though we may not be liable and a thousand dollar dispute is relatively easy for us to deal with. Interestingly, the terms actually don't require consumers to waive their claims against anybody as a condition of submitting a claim through the, quote, A to Z claims process. I should clarify a little bit to say, if the consumer actually accepts that $1,000, at that point, they're going to have to sign some sort of waiver. Um, Ah. All it says is that if you submit a claim in the A to Z claims process, you can't, while that claim is pending, also maintain some other claim in another forum. And so what Amazon's doing here is saying, let's create this separate sort of framework for resolving consumer disputes and small consumer disputes, but not necessarily forcing the consumer to give up their right to proceed in court. So I think that's probably the the first thing that stood out. And then the second thing is the dollar amount of how much Amazon is compensating customers. So $1,000 is obviously in the average purchase, you know, could, is consequential, right? To me, it's a, it's a consequential dollar amount. But in the realm of product liability lawsuits, which often involve personal injury or bodily harm, this dollar amount probably is not designed to capture those types of disputes, right? I think most people would look at it and say, if there's, you know, a battery's exploding and that somebody's injured, $1,000 is not sort of targeting those types of disputes. So those are the two things that stood out. And the best I can say about it is that maybe it's just a way to weed out smaller disputes and sort of shuttle them to the side, gain some PR. But I don't know that it's going to be really effective to deal with these like larger product liability issues that Amazon is facing. Jason, I know this obviously has huge implications for third-party sellers. And one point of clarification I want to make before we jump into those issues is that Amazon says that it may also step in to help with claims for higher amounts, higher than $1,000, if the seller is unresponsive or rejects a claim that Amazon believes to be valid. So it's not a hard and fast ceiling on that $1,000, even though that clearly is the benchmark that they're setting, which they say accounts for about 80% of cases that they run into. But what does this mean for third-party sellers? What are the implications for the folks that, that you work with? We know it's interesting. I remember back in 2002 when I first started selling on Amazon, it was a huge deal to us because we had a requirement in our very first agreement with Amazon to have a $4 million product liability policy. We were doing all of $100,000 a year in sales back in 2003. And so we had to stop everything, borrow from relatives to buy a $4 million product liability policy to be able to sell on Amazon. And then we had to show proof. And so that we had to show that proof every year in the first three to five years. And at some point, they stopped asking. And the requirement in terms of the product liability dollar amount dropped off of the agreement. And I thought, this is so interesting. This seems like a big deal. They're making sure that a seller who's selling a product is selling a safe product. They're holding them accountable. They're making sure that they're insured and they're covering their butts, frankly. And I thought, okay, that's fine. It's a cost of doing business. We did it. And why did they stop asking for that requirement? And so, you know, what was my answer? Long term is this whole section 230, uh, you know, the, of the of the Communications Decency Act 
that protected platforms like Facebook, like Amazon from product liability. So I thought, well, maybe they feel that they don't need to require this liability because it's it's preventing them from signing more sellers, which at that point in time time was really important to them. Not so much anymore because they have more sellers than anybody. But I thought maybe they just you know felt like they, they were safe. And then if you look back at some cases in Ohio and Pennsylvania before the, the most recent cases that Venket can speak to more intelligently than I can, Amazon didn't lose any product liability cases until very recently. And so I don't know, look, is Amazon doing this out of the goodness of their heart? Are they doing this because they really, really love their consumers and that they care about you know making sure third-party sellers? I don't know. The timing to me sounds a little bit fishy. And it sounds a little bit fishy because they lost the lawsuit in California recently. And I think in another state, but again, Venkat can answer that. Venkat, Jason referenced Section 230. And obviously, a lot of us are familiar with that if we are familiar with it from the efforts by some to hold social networks like Facebook and others liable for content published on their platforms. And I know you've actually been involved in Section 230 cases. Are there parallels here to what goes on in those kinds of social networks between that and and the e-commerce situation? Absolutely, there are parallels. And going back in history, other beneficiaries of Section 230 have been Craigslist, eBay, all of the classified companies have benefited. And, And the basic premise of Section 230 is that if a third party, a user posts content, the network or the platform cannot be held liable for any cause of action based on that content. So if I advertise a car on Craigslist and you pay and I don't deliver the car, you can't sue Craigslist based on that transaction because the entirety of of the cause of action is based on content that I, the advertisement that I posted to Craigslist. And so I think social networks have have benefited from Section 230. Sellers and e-commerce companies and marketplaces in particular have also benefited from Section 230. But as Jason noted, things have changed in particular, you know, in the recent past, Amazon has lost a few rulings where court said, you know, you can hold Amazon liable for product liability claims. And, and, I, and I think there's two parts to that. One is Section 230 itself is sort of under attack. You know, it's, it's making headlines in the news. The other aspect as well is that Amazon is much more involved in the transaction through its fulfillment program than, say, Craigslist, right? Craigslist is is famously hands-off and doesn't do anything, at least in the typical transaction and historically. So it's easy for them to say, we have no part in this transaction beyond being a publisher. It seems like Amazon is trying to make the case that it is not legally liable for these products sold on its platform by third-party sellers through the Amazon marketplace. At the same time, it's making these accommodations to take some responsibility, denying liability, but taking some voluntary responsibility. And I think voluntary is the key word there because voluntary responsibility can be revoked and it doesn't subject them to this vast liability that they could face if they were held legally liable for any defects with any third-party products or products sold by third-party resellers on their platform. Am I, am I getting at that right, Venkat? I think that's spot on. And the key is the way you discharacterize 
the voluntary nature of their initiative is perfect, right? They're not giving up anything by doing this. They're just sort of offering this up saying, okay, let's make this right for some category of consumers. And I think as you say that, it makes me think there's obviously PR value, but there could also be sort of a statement to regulators or just sort of a feel-good carrot to government agencies to say, hey, we're doing something when your constituents are calling and complaining or where there's a lot of pressure, just realize, you know, we're doing something. So that could be an audience as well. But there's another big case that's playing into all of this. That's next. One of the key backdrops for all of this is a complaint that was filed against Amazon in July by the Consumer Product Safety Commission seeking to have the company designated as a distributor in such a way that Amazon would be required to recall products determined defective, even if they were sold on the marketplace. And reading some of the documentation behind that, it's clear again that Amazon is really trying to thread a needle. They, in response to the Consumer Product Safety Commission said, hey, sure, we will agree to do these recalls, but we are going to do it voluntarily. We're not doing it because we're obligated. We are going to do it through what we're calling, as Amazon, the recalls pledge. And they said they would be, quote, proud to be the first signatory and to assist in promoting the pledge and encouraging others to join. So there, again, you see this sort of voluntary language, taking voluntary responsibility, but not accepting a legal liability. What did you make of that, Jason? (laughs) Um, well, I think it's always, it's so nice of Amazon whenever they try to include all the other marketplaces with, with much less capital to do these kinds of investments, right? You know, the AI bots just popped into my head as you're asking the question and I still have more questions than answers or responses. And and so my question is who determines when a product needs to be recalled? Is this Amazon going to be making this decision with their AI bots who are like six-year-olds who make mistakes? at a high rate all the time that affects tens of thousands of sellers every single day. If that's the case, this is going to be, this has the potential to really put small business sellers out of business. Um, now, if, if it's a, if it's a legitimate recall and the CPSC is, is behind it and they're saying this product has a legitimate claim we've investigated and that needs to be recalled from the marketplace and Amazon helps enforce that, then that's great. But again, here we are again, the second example where Amazon is voluntarily putting themselves in place as the judge, juror, and executioner. And who's the lowest member of the totem pole here? <laughs> the third party seller. Amazon's like, we're going to take care of this for you, everybody. Don't worry. We're going to take care of it. What, they're, what they mean to say is we're going to take care of it and we're going to take it out of a third party seller's hide whenever we get an opportunity so that we don't have to eat it. You know, I'm looking at it from the consumer standpoint and uh, you're right. Like it's, you read the complaint, um, the recall complaint and the pledge, and it just seems like it's exactly as you characterized it, right? Like they're refusing, there's a legal complaint asking them to comply with recalls and they're saying, no, 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 we're not going to worry about those recalls or, you know, we did the best we could, but by the way, we're going to do this other thing over here that is voluntary and will accomplish all the needs that, uh, you know, the regulators are are asking for. So it sort of seems like a, a dance that it's Amazon's doing on a lot of different fronts. At minimal cost to Amazon. Right. <laughs> Good point. Okay. Yeah. Amazon pointed to a statement that was made by the acting chairman of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, Robert Adler. 
And he essentially voted in favor of filing the complaint against Amazon over these recalls to label the company a distributor and effectively hold them liable for these product liability cases. Basically, his point is, hey, look, this is not sustainable. If we just, as the CPSC, go after companies like Amazon on a product-by-product basis, trying to get them to be legally liable, the words that he used were, to continue product-by-product is like using an eyedropper to empty the ocean, ineffective, inefficient, and frustratingly insufficient to protect consumers. The best solution would be for the CPSC and third-party platforms to work together to craft agreements. And that's effectively what Amazon says it was trying to do through this recall pledge that it proposed. I I look at this and I, I see what they're doing. I get their legal argument and I see how they're trying to thread the needle. And at the same time, when you look at the volume of the problem, Amazon's position makes some sense to me. It certainly makes good business sense for them to get in front of this. It would have made more sense for them to do this maybe two years ago or three years ago after they won one of these product liability cases, after they weren't held liable uh, for a product defect. I think that would have uh, been a much stronger PR point than doing it now sort of after they've had a couple black eyes. So it's just, you know, look, they're a big 1.89, maybe after today it's $2 trillion company and valuation and they're a business and they, they need to protect themselves and, and cover their butts. And that's what this is on multiple fronts. They're, they're covering their butts. And, you know, my question for Venkat is, Venkat, the way that they're communicating to the CPSC, the way that they're communicating to the public and through their PR, is there anything that you're picking up as an attorney in their language that helps provide more insulation for them that could prop up their protections with section 230. I, I, I don't know if it's there. Maybe I'm just, you know, grasping at straws here, but do you see anything in there that says Amazon's making their case for more section 230 protections or have they given up? Oh, that's a really good question. Every time they cite the mantra of being a platform or an intermediary or a marketplace, that's sort of classic section 230 language, right? So section 230 was a part of the Communications Decency Act. It was a part of that statute, and a chunk of that statute didn't survive because it was aimed at requiring content, quote, harmful content to be filtered from, you know, minors and certain groups of people. And so a chunk of that statute was challenged and the Supreme Court struck down the statute. But the the part of it that remained was Section 230 basically said platforms can't be held liable for third-party content. And, it, and and the genesis of it was based on uh, defamation decisions against networks and, you know, Bolton board companies, et cetera, or CompuServe, you know, those types of companies. And so that's sort of the Section 230 uh, piece of it. Product liability is sort of a creature of state law, right? So California law has its own rules on product liability, Texas. There's no, there's no or very little, I would say, federal law that is, is dealing with product liability. And so often these lawsuits, these product liability lawsuits ask a question of, okay, is Amazon a quote seller under the product liability statutes, right? And so the definitions of of what is a seller and even the body of laws is pretty varied uh, across various jurisdictions. So I think Jason talked about that California decision that was a a, a big one where uh, it was called Loomis versus Amazon where the court basically said 
you know, there's no public policy reason to let Amazon off the hook. All product liability policies point in favor of treating Amazon as a, quote, distributor, you know, participant in the stream of commerce. Now, several months later in June, there was a ruling from Texas, the highest court in Texas, that looked at the Texas product liability body of law and said, well, the rules are slightly different here. There was a statute on the books and the court said the statute was aimed at sort of limiting the scope of product liability. And the key fact the Texas court looked at was Amazon never took title to the product. So that's a big sort of thing that I think Amazon never has historically done and is always trying to point to to say, you know, everything else aside, we may assist third-party sellers, we may fulfill, we may do customer service, but you know what? We never take title to the product and that often states sort of hinge their product liability rules on that. That's interesting. Jason, give us the third-party seller perspective on that because effectively sellers are shipping their products to Amazon's warehouses. So Amazon takes possession, but Venkat is saying they don't take ownership. Yeah, that's exactly right. From a business model, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, Amazon has half a billion products listed on its website, only 15 million. I mean, that's a big number. Only 15 million are, are Amazons from a traditional retail perspective. The rest of that are third party sellers. So imagine if Amazon, as the retailer with all its resources, wanted to carry and hold title of that inventory, and they had to pay for that inventory and store it on their own without passing on those fees to the third-party sellers. They just couldn't have that kind of selection. They would probably have a fraction of that selection. And so it's the pure genius in the marketplace model that they've submitted and that they've created. And um, yeah, third-party sellers, absolutely right. Third-party sellers own that inventory. And they're paying the storage fees. They're paying the pick, pack, and ship fees. Amazon's just sort of uh, holding on to it and delivering it for them. It's fascinating because the third-party sellers are paying Amazon for the privilege of Amazon not owning it. That's right. That's exactly right. Can you give us a flavor from the third-party seller standpoint of like, you know, do you have to give a deposit or how does the sort of, at a very basic level, how does the money exchange work where you depo- you send a product, do they give you a credit? Does Amazon give you a credit and say, okay, we have five widgets in our warehouse that's equal to X dollars? Yeah. So that inventory is yours. It goes on your balance sheet until it's shipped and sold. And um, the fees associated with it are, uh, you, you know, you have to have a seller central account. I think the fee is $39 a month, which is nothing. You you pay and ship. And many times you're using Amazon's carrier to pick up inventory from your warehouse, move it into Amazon's fulfillment by Amazon, FBA for short, warehouses. Amazon stores it. If it stays there longer than 30 days, then you get a fee. You, they, they sort of carry this running ledger of the sales that you bring in. They, they deduct the seller fee for every sale that happens. They deduct the storage fees, any pick, pack, and outbound shipping fees after the fact. And then the money that's left over, Amazon holds on to that and they deposit it into your account every two weeks. Now, it's infinitely more complicated than that now. They're actually holding back more of third-party sellers' money for as long as 30, sometimes 45 days, which, again, is another thing I don't like. But um, they're using the they're using these third-party sellers as their bank in many ways in order to have this selection. And in many cases, Amazon's 15% take rate is making more money than the sellers are making after all their fees. Wow. And one, one follow-up question, sort of a silly one, is do you have to do like an initial deposit? How did they 
ensure that there's money in your account. Like if something goes wrong, like your very first sale, are you, are, are they sort of at your mercy? Well, yeah, they'll, they'll hold back your sales on the Amazon platform until you have enough money to pay them. Uh, I think, so there's no deposit required. The, your deposit is sending that inventory, listing the product and selling it. They'll just hold on to your money from your sale on the Amazon platform until they're ready to give it to you, basically. Wow, that's genius. It's genius. <laughs> it's brilliant. I mean, that is that is the story of their success, the Amazon online marketplace, and then taking cost centers and turning them into service revenue streams. And it's so fascinating, too, because the limiting of the liability through these business relationships versus ownership relationships also extends to other parts of their business. The first thing I thought of, Jason, as we were talking about this, was the delivery service partners program where Absolutely. Amazon contracts with these third-party delivery companies that it effectively helps get off the ground, has them primarily deliver packages for Amazon. That's the way it's set up, even though it's not an actual restriction. And then those folks bear the liability themselves. It's it's really interesting. In fact, this should probably be one of the leadership principles. And this is giving me an idea, Jason. <laughs> we should come up with Amazon's unwritten leadership principles. Oh, yes. I'm in, Todd. I'm in. I think this would be close to the top of the list. Well, look, one of them is OPW. They're a big believer in other people's work, right? Other people's work. Don't spend your own money when you can make somebody else spend theirs instead, right? There's there's okay. one and two. We, we're going to keep going. Okay. We'll, we'll, I'm going to work on the list. I'll get back this, to you. This is, that's I'll a, get back this to is you. a whole other episode. I love it. I yeah. love it. Okay. <laughs> but we've got Venkat here. So I want to, in the time we have left, get a sense for where this could go. Because it feels like it's still stuck at this spot, even with all these rulings with the Consumer Product Safety Commission filing this complaint, where it's at a bit of a standoff where Amazon is saying, we're going to be good citizens by taking on this responsibility voluntarily, but you're not going to be able to hold us legally liable by default for these things. And some of the courts and the Consumer Product Safety Commission are saying, well, actually, we are going to hold you liable. Where does this go, Venkat? Do you have a sense for how this could play out? I, I mean, I think the tide sort of turned against Amazon. And I, I haven't done a count, but I think more and more courts are perfectly willing to hold Amazon liable. And um, I think they're just going to increasingly face liability in multiple forums. And so, you know, I don't, I, I don't know what the fix would be from their perspective. You know, I, I imagine asking regulators to sort of give them protection is off the table, just given the state of discussions today. So I, that's a good question. I mean, I think insurance is one, um, one alternative, maybe they sort of turn back to that. But um, I think they're in a, from a legal standpoint, I think they're, they got to be looking at this saying, okay, we're, we're losing this battle in terms of not being held liable as a seller distributor. What else can we do now? There's an interesting parallel, sales tax liability. Amazon forever chose not to collect and remit sales tax on behalf of the third-party sellers, but look what's happened. Almost every single state in the union now has gone to the state legislature and they've passed a law requiring Amazon to, to collect and remit sales tax. So each of these states, the ones that haven't fallen, I, I can see a wave of state legislation that makes it possible for them to hold them accountable. So this is just Amazon seeing the storm coming, 
trying to get ahead of it and covering their butts. And you know what? That's what businesses do. I can't really blame them. I just, you know, I wish they would have taken the the safety and product safety of their consumers more seriously earlier on. And, you know, there's also another thing that we didn't even talk about. Prevent bad stuff from coming into your warehouse to begin with. Require the the fastest growing segment of third-party sellers, which are China factories, require them to send safety testing data on everything that comes into your warehouse. That's a better way to do it. Right now, the cart's in front of the horse, I think. And so anyway, I, I think there's a parallel here. And I think that um, Venkat is 100% right. More chips are going to fall. And there's another parallel here to the tax debate, the sales tax issue. And that is that Amazon is saying, we'll go there, but everybody else has got to go with us too. Here is a statement that an Amazon spokesperson gave to me when I was asking for more information to better understand their position on this. They said, quote, under the current legal framework, sellers are liable for the products they sell, and we have advocated for legislative changes that would hold all stores, online and offline, traditional retailer or marketplace, to the same standard of liability. All stores. So they effectively are saying, okay, we'll do this, we'll be held liable, but let's come up with some rules and let's make sure everybody is held to those same rules on the same level. What's wrong with that? Doesn't that seem reasonable? This is where the rubber meets the road, Todd. They've been out, the standard bearer, holding and saying, we only care about the Amazon consumer. And so, I don't know, I think we've talked about plenty of cases where they really didn't do a very good job for the Amazon consumer here. And now after the fact, they're coming in and saying, see how great we are? And that look, that's the job of PR. That's the job of their attorneys over there. But let's not give them too much credit for doing something that they wouldn't have done voluntarily if it hadn't been, in my opinion, for the California case. And secondly, Amazon has many more resources than their smaller competitors who are upstarts and growing fast. And so it's in their best interest. They have the capital to secure these things and to take care of these processes and to institute them. And by requiring, working with legislators to require that their smaller upstart competitors also have to pay for this at a stage of their business when Amazon didn't have to, is to Amazon's competitive advantage as well. Jason Boyce is our day two collaborator. He is a former top 200 third-party seller on Amazon, founder of Avenue 7 Media and co-author of the book, The Amazon Jungle. Venkat Balasubramani is a Seattle-based attorney and the co-founder of the law firm Focal PLLC. Venkat, where's the best place for people to follow you? Twitter, undoubtedly. Um, and my Twitter handle is not very user-friendly. It's my first initial, V as in Victor, and then my last name, Balasubramani, B-A-L-A-S-U-B-R-A-M-A-N-I. Um, I've been told multiple times I need to change change that handle to make it easier, but I'm stubbornly hanging on. <laughs> it's been great to have you on. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. And Jason, for folks who don't follow you yet, where's the best place to do that? Twitter also and LinkedIn, Jason R. Boyce on LinkedIn and at J-A-S-B-O-Y-C-E, Jace Boyce on Twitter. And, um, you know, folks can send me an email through info at avenue, the number seven media.com as well. Thank you for listening to day two from GeekWire. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app, catch up on our recent episodes and leave a rating and a review with your thoughts on the show. You can find more at geekwire.com slash day two. Our opening news clip was from WSOC TV in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop, and you can reach me at Todd with two Ds at geekwire.com. And we will be back soon with a new episode of Day 2.